0: And at the beginning of that message, I asked two questions. First, if you consider yourself a Protestant, what are you protesting? And secondly, if you consider yourself an evangelical, what is your evangel? In other words, what is your gospel? Well, those questions are designed to help us get a clear grasp of the fact that Roman Catholicism and the gospel of the Bible are not compatible with one another. One is the good news of the glorious and unshakable salvation that God has wrought in Jesus Christ. The other is a man-made religious system devised by the devil to lead men to hell. But Catholicism is not the only twisted version of the gospel in our day. Among Protestant evangelicals, there is an astounding lack of clarity on what the gospel is and how it should be preached. In our day, the greatest battle of the church, which we are fighting, is not the battle over abortion, it's not a battle for political or theological liberalism or judicial tyranny in the courts, it's not racial reconciliation or denominational unity. None of those are the great battle of the church of our day. No, the greatest battle is over the fabric of the gospel. What exactly is the good news? And how should it be proclaimed? How should we understand this call to to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? And how do we share that with other people? I dare say the way that most of us present the gospel is not the way the Bible presents the gospel. Unfortunately, the gospel is often presented in churches today as a gospel that is formulated to make believers feel good about themselves and to feel good about God. It's a one-sided gospel that's all about God's love and grace and mercy and makes no demands upon the soul. It promises that Jesus will turn your life around or help, help you love yourself or forgive yourself or get you out of the financial worries you've gotten yourself into or cure you, your depression or to fix your marriage or to bring back your children. But it says nothing about God's holiness. It does nothing to elicit the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of everything else. Nothing to do with the fear of the Lord or desire for a purified life. It's a gospel that promises unlimited, unconditional grace without any demands. J.C. Ryle once wrote, It is vain to shut our eyes to the fact that there is a vast quantity of so-called Christianity nowadays. By the way, this is a hundred years ago. It's vain to shut our eyes to the fact that there is a vast quantity of so-called Christianity nowadays which cannot be declared positively unsound, but which nevertheless is not full measure, good weight, 16 ounces to a pound. And it's a Christianity which, in which there is undeniably something about Christ and something about grace and something about faith and something about the Bible and repentance, something about holiness, but it is not the real thing as it is in the Bible. Things are out of place and out of proportion. As old Hugh Latimer said, it is a kind of mingle-mangle and does no good. It neither exercises influence on daily conduct nor uh, comforts in life nor gives peace in death. And those who hold to it often awaken too late to find that they have nothing solid under their feet upon which to stand. And what an awful day that will be. When someone that we love, or perhaps you, stand before God only to discover there is nothing under your feet to hold you. You have put your trust in the wrong thing. This is not the kind of gospel that Jesus taught, nor was it the gospel of the Apostle Paul. There was a Theirs was a transforming gospel. It was the good news that the death of Jesus provided not only for the penalty of sin, but provided also and miraculously for the power of sin. Victory over the power of sin. In Christ, God gave man not just a soul-saving gospel, but a life-altering gospel as well. And the two are indeed one and the same. They are the same. You don't find Jesus or the apostles preaching a gospel that does not change or demand change from the life. It demands it because it produces it when it is real and when it has been truly received. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we are once again, Paul implores us. You remember in verse 1, Ephesians 4 That we walk in a manner worthy of our calling with which we have been called. Make sure that the way that you live your life balances out with this great calling by which you have been called. You see, the true gospel is a transforming gospel. It has the power not only to change what we believe, but how we behave. It has the power to turn wicked, worldly sinners into holy saints of God. And the true test of whether or not you have embraced the true gospel is not a test of what you say you believe, but by the test of how you live. Has anything changed? Has anything changed in your life since you made your decision for Christ? If not, then maybe it was only your decision. Maybe it wasn't a work of the Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a sinful man, that sinful man starts becoming holy. It happens. By the power of God, it happens. Now, please don't misunderstand. We're not talking about perfection. There isn't a person in this room who still uh, doesn't still battle sin. We all do. And we all sin. We all fail. It's not an issue of perfection. It's an issue of direction. Am I growing in grace? Am I growing in holiness? Is there a change being wrought in me so that I can look back over the last month or at least the last year and say, You know what? A year ago, I wasn't the same person. I wasn't the person that I am today. I've changed. And it isn't because of a self-help manual. It isn't because of a psychological program I heard on the radio. It's about the Holy Spirit taking his word and applying it to my heart in ways that have changed me. I can't explain it except God has been gracious. And again, that's why in verse 17, which is where we're going to start this morning, Paul picks up again. He starts his thought in uh, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. It's not just about what you believe, it's about how you walk. It's about how you live. It's important that you live a holy life. And then he talks about the unity of the church. Remember? We took a long time to go through that. Now in verse 17, he comes back and he has a, he's carrying on the same thought, he's developing it some more, except now he's not talking about unity, now he's talking about purity. He's not talking about unity of all of us together. He's talking about purity in your life. And so he says the same thing in a different way. He says, verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Your walk needs to be different. There ought to be a noticeable difference between who you are now and how you live and who you were before you said that you trusted Jesus. There ought to be a difference. And so Paul picks it back up. So in verse 1, He presents us with a positive command about how we should live, and in verse 17, he presents us with a negative command about how we are not to live. Namely, we are not to live or walk as Gentiles or the nations around us walk. We all used to live like they live. Now our lives are supposed to be significantly different. Now today is Mother's Day, and I suspect many of, our moms will be receiving gifts from their families to make them feel loved and appreciated, and that's great. Some are perhaps hoping for a gift certificate to a local spa, beauty salon for, you know, a little makeover. Others are hoping to get somewhat of a wardrobe makeover. Some of you may stand in your kitchen today and say, boy, I need a, a total Total makeover home edition. You think we could have that, honey? Can we just come in and demolish this thing and rebuild? Something that's total. Something that's totally changed. Well, the gospel offers us something better than all that. We might think of it as a total makeover life edition. When the gospel is presented to you and you you perk up and start listening, The Spirit begins to awaken your heart to the gospel. The Spirit is calling you to something. It is salvation by grace alone that results in a transformed life. By the power of the gospel, God is out to change who you are. He even speaks of it in terms of taking off our old garments and putting on new garments. And so the question for all of Paul's readers is, what kind of garments are you wearing? What's your wardrobe like, spiritually speaking? Is it the wardrobe of the world, or is it the wardrobe of the kingdom of God? Because when the Holy Spirit comes to do his makeover in your life, things on the outside begin to change. You start looking different. You start talking different. You start acting different. You start going to places you never used to go to before, like church. You start reading things that you never thought you'd ever be interested in reading, like the Bible. I mean, I know some of your testimonies. I know some of you came to know the Lord late in life. I've heard it before. Praise God, I hope to hear it a thousand times again. Once I was blind, but now I see. I'm a new man. I'm a new creature. I've been born again of the Spirit. I've been changed. And my affections have changed. The things that I used to love, I don't love anymore. I love new things. And the people I used to hate, now I love them. I can't explain it except God made a change in me. Places I used to go, things I used to do, I don't like doing them anymore. I hate them. I like being around those old friends when they call me on the phone. And once in a while I have this. People call me from my past, you know, and I answer the phone and think, wow, where is this coming from? 20, 30 years back, the things that we did that we shouldn't have been doing, and they're still glorying in that. And I cringe. I hate it now. Why? Because a change has been made. Change has been made in my heart. Let's consider the wardrobe of the world, first of all. Evaluate yourself against this. And evaluate your presentation of the gospel against these things. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But look at verses 17 through 19. Again, verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together. Listen. Affirm together with the Lord. This isn't just me speaking, Paul's saying. I'm just repeating what the Lord has already taught. I affirm it together with the Lord. We're both speaking to you now. That you walk no longer as the Gentiles or the nations also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened, uh, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now, typically, I like to take a verse and begin with the very first words and work through, but I think there's a root issue here at the end of these two verses that we need to start with. Because we want to talk about the characteristics in the life of an unbeliever or the wardrobe of an unbeliever, the first thing we see, and there are going to be four, the first thing we see is a hardened heart. This is the root of the rest. It's a hard heart. Paul says in verse 18 that unbelievers are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Or you could say, Because of the ignorance that is in them due to or as a result of or owing to the hardness of their heart. The hardness of the heart is the root that produces the fruit. Now a hardened heart is not the first characteristic Paul mentions, but it is the root. The Greek word here for hardening comes from the word poros, which originally meant a stone harder than marble. We might call this a heart of stone. It's what Ezekiel referred to. Remember back in Ezekiel, what is it, 36? Where God promises that someday I will come and do such a work in you, I will remove from you your heart of what? Stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. What's the difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh? One is dead and one is alive. One is alive unto God. An unbeliever has a hard heart, a heart of stone. What Paul means by hardness of heart is an unwillingness to respond to God's truth. They're absolutely unwilling to respond to God's truth. In fact, the parallels between this and another, Paul, another one of Paul's letters, namely Romans chapter 1, Verse 18, he speaks of unbelievers who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they hold it down. They suppress it. They push it down. I don't want to hear about God. Don't give me your your law. Don't give me your moral standard. Don't give me your judgmentalism. I don't want to hear anything about sin. They press it down. They suppress it. They don't want it making any demands on their lives. That's what it means to have a hard heart. When you hear the gospel preached, and you see the preacher pointing his bony finger at you, mine's not too bony yet, but it will be someday, I hope, when I'm preaching. He points his finger at you and says, Sinner, you need to repent. And you say, I can't believe people are still preaching this stuff. And you press it down. I'm not going to deal with this. You press it down. I don't believe in God. You just press it down. I don't want anybody making demands on my life. This is a free country. You have the freedom to go to hell if you want to. That's what it means to have a hard heart. There's a second characteristic. A second characteristic. Piece of the wardrobe, so to speak, for an unbeliever. They not only have a hard heart, they have a darkened mind. The first part of verse 18 says they are darkened in their understanding. And so we have it. Hardness produces darkness. Hardness produces darkness. Think of darkness as an absence of spiritual understanding, an absence of spiritual light. Again, Paul says in Romans 1, this time verses 21 and 22. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was what? Darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Fools. They had a hard heart and it produced a darkened mind. The more they suppress the truth, the truth, the less capable they are of discerning spiritual reality. They just don't see it. They just don't get it. That's why Paul refers to such people here in in four seventeen as walking in the futility of their mind. Futility simply means emptiness or vanity or without substance. There is no spiritual substance. They're a vacuum. Spiritually, There isn't anything there that's good. Nothing that God approves of. The truth has been suppressed. It has been rejected. Such people are void of any spiritual understanding and hold to that condition willfully. You ever talk to anybody like that? I know some of you, you go home for... Vacations, Thanksgiving or Christmas, and you'll call me on the phone or you'll write me a note and say, please pray for me. I have an unbelieving brother or a mother or a father or a sister or an estranged son who doesn't know the Lord. And every time I talk to them about it, they become hostile, hostile. Pray. The only thing that will help is pray. How do we Pray. Pray like David Brainerd used to pray for his Indians. He prayed, God, I preach as to dead bones. You have got to make them live. I preach to dead bones. Only you can make them live. Put flesh, put a heart, put skin, put life spiritually, spiritual life into my brother or into my mother. And some of you have entire families that have hard hearts and darkened minds, and you don't know what to do. You pray. You speak to them when you can about the truth. You plead with them. And you pray. Because if it's going to happen, it won't be by your excellent apologetics, although those are great and necessary spirit can use that often does it'll be by miraculous power that is unexplainable in human terms jesus explained it best we can understand it right in first uh, in john chapter 3 when he's talking to nicodemus he says you must be born again and nicodemus says yeah, explain that right be born again I, I don't understand and he says you're a teacher of, the, of of the word of god and you don't understand basic Truth, you've got to have a change. There needs to be a change in your heart, and only the Spirit of God can do that. That's why He says, "It's great in Greek. You can't see it in English." But He says, "The wind blows wherever it lists, wherever it wishes. You can't see it. You, you, you can't see where it's coming from or where it's going." And so it is with those who are born from above. Everyone who is born from above. Actually, in the Greek, it says, "The Numa." The wind blows wherever it wishes. You don't see it coming. You don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneumatas. The Holy Spirit. He comes and He goes. And no one can control Him. The only thing we do is pray. Pray. If you're not praying, if you're not praying for your unbelieving loved ones, you're not doing evangelism. You're not doing the thing that is most effective for their soul. It is the most effectual means of grace. We preach and pray. We speak and pray. You say, well, I don't know what to say. Listen, people come to me from time to time and say, Pastor, thanks for that sermon. That was great. And periodically, Charlie did not like me to say this very much, but periodically I'll say, just give glory to the God of Balaam's ass. Because the God who can make the donkey talk is the God of every preacher. He'll give you words. And when you're done, you'll say, I didn't say much. It's not about you. It's about the Spirit. It's about the Spirit. Using His truth. Using His Word. I know people who have come to know the Lord from the strangest, strangest circumstances. And... Presentations of the gospel that you would scoff at. I would scoff at. I'd say some correction needs to be made here. But the Spirit used it. So when we talk about getting the gospel right, please don't don't understand me to say that the Holy Spirit can't use your best attempt to communicate the gospel. He does. It is nevertheless our responsibility to get it right. I have no idea where I am in my notes. (laughs) Unbeliever, first of all, has a hard heart. And the hard heart produces a darkened mind. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They love their unrighteousness so much that they cannot abide the truth. Just know that that's true. Just know it's true. They walk in the futility of their mind. Verse 18 says that they are excluded from the life of God because of their, what's the next word? Ignorance. They're excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance. The word for ignorance here is agnoia. You know what English word we get from that? Agnostic. I don't know. I don't think anybody can know. And I don't want to know. Just leave me Ignorant. I want to be an ignoramus. Don't give me the truth. It's offensive to me. I don't want to hear that. I disagree with that. I don't like that. You're so judgmental. That's what it is to have a darkened mind. They don't understand the things of God simply because they don't want to. The gospel offends them. They want nothing to do with it. If you doubt this at all, you need but to visit the religious religion classes of some of our finest universities, even in our own town. There's no lack of religion in America. Don't let anybody tell you that spirituality is on the decline. It's not true. There's all kinds of spiritual stuff happening, and most of it doesn't have anything to do with a Holy Spirit. There's no danger of America losing its religion. It's just that the religion the elite minds of our culture are embracing is the religion of their own making. Full of provocative philosophies and, quote, liberating ideologies, but totally devoid of real life. Because it's totally hardened and blind to God. And it is totally devoid of an individual whose name is Jesus. And so spiritual hardness leads to spiritual blindness, which thirdly is evidenced in a third characteristic or a third piece to the wardrobe of the world, spiritually speaking. And that is hardened heart, darkened mind, third thing, dead spirit, dead spirit. Again, verse 18, Paul says that such people are separated from the life of God. The life of God. I love that phrase. When I was working on it on my computer, I changed the font, made it real big, and made it blue. The life of God. I just meditated on that for a while. That's what I have. And that's what you have if you have Christ. If you are in Christ, you have life. You have the life of God. That's why there's a change. Because you were once dead in your transgressions and sins, right? Ephesians 2:1 Now you are alive. Now you possess the life of God. It's a great phrase. It's not just that being dead in the spirit, it's not just that we're wrong on a couple of points of doctrinal detail. It's that such people were utterly and completely dead to God. His spirit has no effect on them. His word is nothing more than meaningless. To such people evil is good and good is evil. And to them the great sins of our culture are not killing babies or homosexual relationships. The really great sin is the sin of intolerance. It's the sin of telling people they're sinners and calling them to repentance. And by the way, that's something that Robert Shuler says is the most uncouth thing that a pastor could ever do, is tell people that they're a sinner in need of repentance. In the minds of many people, people who do these things are the greatest threat to society, that is you and me. People who go around and make it their ambition to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and to tell them Tell them the wonderful news that I have a great message for you. People sometimes ask me, well, what do you do for a living? I have a great job. Great job. I get to tell everybody I meet that every sin you ever committed can be forgiven. can be forgiven. In their minds, that's a horrible job. That is so judgmental. What do you mean sin? And so it leads to a fourth characteristic, the fourth piece of the wardrobe of the world, hard heart, darkened mind, dead spirit, which produces, number four, reckless behavior. Verse 19, and they, having become callous, it's kind of a play on hardened They, having become calloused, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Some translate impurity with greediness as greedy impurity. Greedy impurity. It's not that greediness is a separate category of sensuality and immorality or impurity. And then we have greediness. No, greediness kind of describes the attitude or the passion with which they are pursuing sensuality and impurity with greed. I want more. I want more. I want more. You remember Jesus' words, right? You cannot love God and money, right? What does that mean? You can just put in there anything other than money. What does it mean to love money? I want more. I want more. Give me more. Give me more. What does it mean to love God? I want more. I want more. Give me more of Him. Oh, that I may know Him. That I may know Him. I don't know Him nearly as much as I want to, the Apostle Paul said. That I might know Him in the power of His resurrection, even fellowshipping with His suffering. I'll do anything to know him better. I want more. I want more. Jesus says, you can't do that and say, I want more to money. And you can't do that to say, I want more of pornography. I want more drugs. I want more alcohol. I want more opportunity to express my anger. I want more opportunity to be entertained in unlawful, sometimes lawful ways. You can't love. Those things and God. Because one is going to be all consuming. And it's going to make you hate all the others. Impurity, greedy impurity, greedy sensuality. They are greedy for the next available turn on. Their lusts are never satisfied. They become callous to any sensitivity to conscience. They are long past feeling any conviction for sin. And by the way, you could really even see this passage as kind of a warning, a progression of steps, right? You start off with a hard heart. You move to a darkened mind. You continue suppressing the truth and not responding to the spirit, and you will find that you have a dead spirit that cannot be awakened. And it leads to reckless behavior. And I say cannot be awakened. Obviously, the Holy, every salvation is a miracle. God is not bound by any sin of any man. But there comes a point, you know, where the Holy Spirit doesn't make the offer anymore. You've turned him aside and turned him aside and turned him aside and turned him aside. You've heard so many sermons on the gospel. You've been implored to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus so many times and have resisted it and resisted it that you got harder and harder and darker and darker and deader and deader and and now there's nothing there. Nothing affects you anymore. You're totally callous, callous meaning insensitive without any feeling anymore and you're dead. It's a frightening thing to consider the fact that this is where a large portion of our country is today. They have thrown off all restraint and are now free to flaunt their wicked lust for every sensual thing. Everything that is sensual and godless. Hardly a day goes by when the news does not demonstrate that our culture is hell-bent in its cavalier reckless pursuit of sin. And I could bring up statistics here, I read them all the time, about how the church is very much, in many cases, not different at all from the world in the way that we live. Now, clearly, not every believer has descended to this level of debauchery and their rejection of God, but it remains true that hearts that are hard toward God would rather keep their old stinky, smelly, filthy garments of sin than give them up for the holy garments of a transformed life. And the garments that they may be wearing may not be nearly as rotten and stench filled as someone else's. The degree of decay may not be as advanced. But the need is the same. Willful unbelievers don't want to experience spiritual makeovers. They don't want to be spiritually awakened. They don't want to be spiritually transformed. They want to be left alone in their sin. That's where they want to be. And so, as Paul explains further in Romans chapter 1, God pours out his wrath on them by doing what? Giving them over to their sin. How is God pouring his wrath out on America today? You know how he's pouring out his wrath on America? He's saying, fine, Take it. You want that? You want that reckless sensuality and pornography and addictions and all kinds of stuff? You want that instead of me? Fine. Take it. And you deal with the fallout. Live with it. And then for an eternity in hell as your reward. God pours out his wrath by giving people over to their sins, the sins that they love so dearly, until they self destruct before him of their own free will. Paul's point here is that's not true of those who truly embrace the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. True believers don't dress like this. We don't dress like this. We don't look like this before the world. We're different. Notice the difference between the wardrobe of the world and the wardrobe of the kingdom. The wardrobe of the kingdom. Starting with verse 20. The first thing I want you to see is an understanding heart. Not a hard heart. An understanding heart. Verses 20 and 21. But you, notice the but, notice the transition here. But you, it's a but of contrast. You are not like that, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That's kind of a, an awkward sentence, isn't it? It's kind of cryptic. What does that mean? What does all this unusual language mean? What is learn Christ and heard him and been taught in him and truth is in Jesus? How are we to understand all these terms? Well, very simply, Paul is speaking about the hearing and receiving of the true gospel that he himself has preached. To learn Christ is to gain a living knowledge of him. To have heard Christ is to have heard, to have heard with understanding. we hear. Uh, Jesus said, "My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. To be taught in Him is reference to having willingly received instruction about our need for Him and His gracious power to provide. What every true believer learns at the very beginning of their walk with God is that all the truth they will ever need is wrapped up in Jesus. Truth is in Jesus. You want to know what's true about life? You want to find yourself? You don't need to go away anywhere. Just come to the book. You get to know Jesus. You'll find yourself. He'll tell you who you are. If you're an unbeliever, he won't mince words. If you're a child of God, he'll be very, very clear and decisive in his love for you. That's what Paul's talking about. He's just talking about the gospel. Just talking about the gospel. He's talking about salvation. You didn't learn Christ this way. You didn't come to Christ by... This sensuality, this greediness for impurity, that didn't have anything to do with the gospel that was preached to you. What every true believer learns from the beginning is that when God does something in your heart, bringing you to salvation, it's a life change. It's a life change. And so Paul is saying the gospel we received was not a blind religion of fleshly indulgence, but a turning to the person of Christ. By God's grace, our hard hearts have been transformed into living hearts. We saw Christ for who he really is, and the light came on for us for the first time in our lives. We saw him, and we loved what we found. An understanding heart then brought about The second piece of the wardrobe for us when we came to know the Lord. And that is an enlightened mind. Verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Now, let me throw in a parenthesis here. Most of the time when you hear this text preached, it'll start right here. And it will give it, as an imperative, a command. In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self which is in the likeness of God as being created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And I struggled with that this week. Boy, some of the language here just isn't matching up to what I think he ought to be saying. He's not saying, He's not saying that what you, Christian, right now, need to do is renew your mind. Now, is that a biblical truth? Yes, it is. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's a daily process. We need to be doing that. He's not saying here that you need to take off the old garments of sin and put on Christ. Now, do we need to do that every day? Do we need to wash our feet every day? Do we need to deal with issues of sin every day? Yes. That's not what he's talking about here. How do I know that? Because look at his wording. Verse 22, the very first word is that. It's not therefore. It's not because. It's not a word that indicates, okay, here's a new thought. Now here's what I want you to do. Rather, it's that. In other words, I'm still talking about the same thing here. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about the presentation of the gospel that has come to you. And this is what you need to know. This is what you need to be reminded of. Look in verse uh, 25. This is where we're going to start getting real practical. So it's important that we understand these previous verses. Therefore, laying aside falsehoods, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, uh, on, uh, on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather, and he goes on and on, and he deals with one issue after another after another, a whole grocery list of issues that we're going to look at. But before we get there, we need to understand what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the gospel that was preached to you is different than anything else in the world. And you remember what it was. You remember what it was. Your mind has been enlightened. He's still speaking about the gospel that we heard and we understood. And what we understood it to say was that the old way of life, the old way of life had to go. The offer... Is not Jesus plus your immorality, or Jesus plus your addictions, or Jesus plus your cheating, or lying, or lazy lifestyle? It was Jesus in place of all of those sins. He came to take away sin. That's why 1 John says, you want to know the difference between a believer and unbeliever? Look at their life. Those who practice darkness are from the devil. Those who practice righteousness are of God. Any questions? It's not that complicated. Paul saying the same thing. The gospel we heard was not only the gospel of, forgive, of forgiveness of sins, but repentance from sins as well. Now this is the part of the gospel that so many in our day leave out, and Paul refused to leave it out. We want to call people to enjoy the grace of God, but we're afraid to call them to repentance. Paul was never afraid to do that, and neither was Jesus. And that's why so many people didn't like them. I mean, if he was all grace and all love and all forgiveness and making no demands upon the life, who wouldn't take that? If people were turning away from them all the time. So many people turned away from Jesus one time that he looked at his disciples and he said, are you leaving too? Charles Spurgeon wrote, faith must obey her master's will as well as trust his grace. A pardoning God is jealous still for his own holiness. That means holiness in your life. Again, Spurgeon writes, true belief and true repentance are twins. It would be idle to attempt to say which is born first. All the spokes of a wheel move at once when the wheel moves, and so the graces commence action when regeneration is wrought by the Holy Ghost. Repentance, however, there must be. No sinner looks to the Savior with a dry eye or a hard heart. Nobody can come to God and say, I receive your salvation, but I'm not giving up my sin. That's rebellion. That's rebellion suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, professing to be wise, they become fools. This is the gospel Paul preached. It's the gospel which is willingly received by all who are truly born again. Don't be afraid of offending people, not for your sake. Don't be afraid that somebody might listen to what you have to say and walk away from it. You know, you can't save them. You know that, don't you? And when we present the gospel, we don't save anyone. I can't save you. I can't save anyone. The only thing I can do is get the message right. I've got to get it right. And you know what? You're not helping if you don't give the whole message. And you're certainly hindering if the message that you've presented and the message that has been received is only a partial message. Accept Jesus and return to your lifestyle of sin. God loves you just the way you are. Don't worry about it. You just pray this prayer. You just put the sticker in the back of your Bible. You just let me sign it as a witness. If you ever have any doubts, look to the sticker. What? What kind of nonsense is that? Look to the sticker. It's because the wardrobe of all true believers includes not only an understanding heart, but a willing mind. And the third piece of the wardrobe makeover, as it were. Every true believer also has, number three, a renewed spirit. Look at verse 23. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The idea of renewed here is to become new and different with the implication of becoming superior, better than you were. That's what happens to every person who receives Christ. He becomes a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, look at this. New things have come. Paul is simply describing for us what happened the moment of our salvation. We laid aside the old garments that were falling apart from the filth and stench of our own deceitful lust. And we were renewed in the spirit of our mind. That's what happened when we were saved. That's all he's doing is reminding us what happened when you were saved. This is what happened. We looked at ourselves in the mirror of God's word and we cried out for mercy because of what we saw And we were renewed in the spirit of our mind. Our mind changed. Our mind opened. The light came on and we said, yes, 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 a thousand times yes. You just say what you want, Lord. I'll do anything. That's the heart of someone who's really getting it. The person who's really got the light turned on. They weep bitter tears of their own repentance over their own sin. And they say, God, I read in David Brainerd where one of the Indian women came and said, If he wants to send me to hell, let it be so that he might be glorified. All of him and none of me. And Brainerd wrote in his journal, she misunderstands, but her spirit is right. That's what our spirits are and were when we came to Christ. By God's grace, we understand An understanding produced a willing mind and a renewed spirit which naturally produces the fourth garment or the fourth piece of the wardrobe of a true believer. And that is, verse 24, righteous behavior, not reckless behavior, righteous behavior. Verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's what you did. That's what you did. It was all God's power. It was God's doing. But the effect of it was you took off the old self and you put on the new self. And that's important because before I start talking about we don't lie anymore. We don't cheat anymore. We don't let the sun go down on our wrath anymore. Understand that the root of that is the gospel. It's the spirit that you had on the day that you first believed. Do you remember that? I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be holy because he's worthy. Remember that? Don't forget that. You remember when you took off that old stinky life and put on the robes of Christ? Don't forget that. Because we have a tendency to forget. And we have a tendency to be drawn back to those old comfortable holy t-shirts, right? Those old jeans that you like to keep and, you know, that T-shirt that you like to wear and your wife just wants to throw it away, but she doesn't dare because, you know, she'll incur your wrath. Those old shorts you've been wearing since high school and it's got, you know, the, the, the little logo of your high school and you don't want to ever get rid of them and they're stained and they're gross and they stink and just get them out of the house. We're drawn back to that. It's so comfortable. It's what I grew up with. Paul Paul's saying, you're a new person. Remember what it was like when you first believed? You took that off. Don't put it back on. Don't put it back on. Likeness of God. What does that mean? According to what God is. Perhaps it's a better, more difficult in translation. What does it mean to be made in the likeness of God? You are made to be like what God is. What is God? He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely pure. He is absolutely righteous. 2 Peter 1.4 says, He granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Why am I new? Why am I wearing this new clothes? Why am I behaving differently? I don't even understand it myself. All I know is this is where my desires are leading me right now. Answer, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. You are becoming like God. You'll never be God. You'll never be God. But there are certain communicable attributes, as theologians call them, that you take on, and one of them is holiness. And one of them is purity. And if you don't see those things growing in your life, then you ought to start asking some hard questions. You ought to start asking yourself some serious questions. Maybe you don't know him. Listen, folks, if you're wanting scripture to use, if you're wanting a scripture to use to help you get the gospel right when you present it to those you love, have this one highlighted in your Bible or committed to memory. After you show them how sinful they are and how needy they are for Christ, and you explain to them the glory of the forgiving grace, you present the law which condemns them. You present the grace which saves them. Don't forget the whole thing. Explain to them the gospel also makes a wonderful demand upon our lives, a wonderful demand 1 John says, God's commands are not burdensome. It's so wonderful. We love God's commands. Namely, tell them this, that in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's the end of the gospel. That's where God wants to take you. And that's where the Holy Spirit does take every true believer. Not in perfection. We will all die sinners. We are sinners all. We will all be unrighteous in and of ourselves but we will be standing on the righteousness of Christ, and we will be wearing, guess what? White robes. You remember Jesus' parable about the wedding? There was a wedding. An important person was being married, and he's going around the wedding room, and he looks in the backs, and there's some people. And he got really upset at those people. Do you know why he got upset at them? They weren't dressed appropriately for the wedding. And Jesus says, get them out of here. Bind them hand and foot and throw them into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? They weren't dressed properly. They weren't dressed properly. When you stand before God, you will stand dressed in your own filthy rags or in the robes of Christ's righteousness. But if you come with those old, stenchy, filthy garments that you've been wearing ever since birth, you will be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. The gospel message is simply that the Lord Jesus has paved the way Done everything possible. And by his grace has given you new clothes. He's given you righteousness. It came out of his own closet. He took it from his own home and he wrapped you in it. It is not your own. It is given to you by another. And now you stand holy before him. Rejoice in that. And pursue it with all of your heart. Lord Jesus, make me more holy. Give me a holy hatred of my own sin. Purify my heart. And make me acceptable to you.